I want to start the presentation to speak about how uh, anti-Semitism is uh, taking place on campus. I think one of the most important things that we have to realize is that the universities in the classroom, in, in, inside the finest universities in the Western world, I would argue, I'm arguing, has become the purveyor of anti-Semitism. And this is the, uh, the struggle, because this is where universities are the most important institution in society, and this is where citizens are formed. And this is where they get their values and their ideas. And I would submit to you that Israel is being portrayed as a problem that needs to be dismantled, or a problem that needs to be significantly uh, rectified. That it's a, it's a problematic entity, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a moment. Uh, this is what students are learning finest universities, it's a problem. And I would like to just give you a small example of a piece of my life and a piece of the life of scholars and students who are combating anti-Semitism on campus or in the, in the classroom. And not only combating it, just scholars who are dealing with it, who are the issue of contemporary anti-Semitism as a, an academic uh, pursuit. And I'm here with Barbara. Barbara is a, a teacher of Holocaust studies in New Jersey, and she's been involved and engaged as a supporter and friend of ISGA for many years. And we had a conference at Oxford before our summer program. We have a summer program where we train professors. And in June of 2019, I was invited to participate in a conference at Oxford University by a friend of mine, who's the Rhodes Professor of Race Relations. He's the first African scholar of the Rose Professor of Race Relations. Uh, he's a good guy, a friend. He's concerned about the rise of racism as well as the rise of anti-Semitism. And one of the first conferences that he organized in Oxford was a program, a conference, three-day conference on racism and diaspora. And he invited me, he knows about his gap, and some of his friends and colleagues are members of our academic committee. And he invited me to participate in the conference, and I brought with me um, eight scholars that were involved with ISGAP to run two panels on issues of anti-Semitism and racism and anti-Semitism and nationalism. And at this conference at St. Anthony's College in African Studies and History, there were about 120 odd professors from around the world, many from the United States, and many, many of them were sort of African, professors of African Studies and African American Studies. And Barbara came and uh, witnessed the, the academic intellectual exchange. Um, on the second day of the conference, a professor stood up and they stopped the proceedings. So we were, we were a group of ISGAP professors. To, uh, the professors were, uh, Yossi Shane was scheduled from Tel Aviv University to speak. Um, we had a professor who didn't show up, but his name is Harold Bennett. He's Martin Luther King Professor of Philosophy and Theology at Morehouse College. That's the chair where Martin Luther King himself studied and taught. Um, one of the most important African American intellectuals in the United States. Uh, Ansel Brown, who's a professor of law in North Carolina. He's Alan Dershowitz's uh, most prized student. He's a young professor of law, also African American. Uh, Larry Amsel, a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. A very serious group of um, and they stopped the conference because 
In the conference, the Charles Small, the fascist racist Zionist was there. Um, I accompanied, the eight scholars that were speaking were accompanied, the, the African American scholars were referred to as the Isgap Negroes, trying to blackwash Zionism. Um, the list went on and on, and I was sitting there, I was, these were the professors, it wasn't the audience, but they were all professors at this major international college, two graduate students. And uh, this is the environment that we live in, and this is the environment that, we, these are professors, these are people at UCLA, at Brooklyn College, some of the finest institutions in the United States and around the world, who didn't even want to hear our papers. Because, you know, our, our papers were only human. Our papers, I'm sure, had flaws and weaknesses and arguments and contradictions. They could have engaged us and pointed out the contradictions in our analysis. And um, we were banned from the conference. And these were people who came from North America and Europe and Israel to participate in the conference. And it was stopped. There was one professor, one, one out of 123 professors who expressed concern. And she was the only one. So we had our seven, our panels in a room, half the size of this room, and we were alone, except for this one professor who, was, uh, who came with us. She's from Ghana, and she was a professor in, uh, in, uh, in Berkeley. And she was the only one to express some reservation about banning legitimate, serious professors and scholars from presenting. And the anti-Semitic tropes were astounding, that the Zionists are paying, my friend Wally, the first African uh, scholar that we were paying, the Zionists were paying him to take over African studies and history at Oxford University. And so he, he's in a very, he's actually in a very bad situation for even being affiliated or associated with us. So his situation is uh, tenuous. So you have one or two kind of radical anti-colonial professors who are out to get him now because he's affiliated with Zionists. And then you have the old Anglo-Saxon Protestant guard that are happy, who are also anti-Israel, and they're happy to, uh, to attack the first African scholar in this position because they wanted the, uh, their friends to have the professorship. And so this was Oxford 2019. And this is the environment that we function in. And I think in terms of uh, strategic studies, security studies, this is, in my opinion, a very serious threat to the Jewish people, to Israel, and I think even more importantly to democratic principles of academic freedom and freedom of speech and academic and intellectual exchange. So this is the story. Now, the interesting thing is, this happened to me before at Yale, but that's another story. I think if you speak to scholars dealing with these issues of anti-Semitism in Western universities in Europe and in North America, this story is uh, not extraordinary. This is, uh, this is the life that we, we live. So, this is, in, and, in, and I think in a way this is a form of incitement, as, as we see from, from the topic of the lecture. So, in our research of Follow the Money, we're looking at the, uh, 
investment of political Islam into American universities. And I'll, exp I'll explain that in a moment. And I think there's a, a, a confluence, there's, a, there's a, a mix of the sort of the red-green alliance, although that's a weak concept. You have on the one hand a lot of funds coming from political Islam coming into American universities. And on the other hand, you have this sort of postmodern moment where I think politics are just flipped upside down on its head. So in a sense, and I won't go into all the details, but in a sense you have people like Edward Said and Michel, Michel Foucault who critiqued the, the dominant Western canon. And I think to a large extent they've replaced it. That the new canon is the critique of the canon. So it's post-modernity, anti-colonialism, sort of the Edward Saidian Orientalism and that sort of thing. And what makes it even more extraordinary is you have, in a sense, they've taken the work of the Frankfurt School of Ardarno and Horkheimer, Horkheimer who did very important studies on fascism just in the, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, on totalitarianism and Nazism and anti-Semitism. And I think, in a sense, what the sort of the postmodern liberals, they're not even, they're not liberals, whatever you want to call them, the postmodern anti-hegemonic, uh, anti-Western intellectuals have sort of taken the Frankfurt School, um, their work on anti-Semitism or on Nazism, and they flipped it to the point where I think Israel has become the, the embodiment of Nazism. So this is, this, and this is sort of, in a sense, the mainstream education today, mainstream. It's not peripheral anymore. I don't think it belongs in the Middle East Studies departments anymore. I think this is sort of the mainstream, uh, dominant, problematic in the social sciences and humanities. So you have political Islam, political Islam, and this sort of intellectual moment where you have people like Judith Butler, a Jewish feminist, gay intellectual, a superstar intellectual, who can actually say things like that Hamas and Hezbollah must be understood as part of the progressive global left. And, and, and as absurd as it would sound to people in this room, this is what sticks. This is what people actually, intellectuals, actually, to a large extent, I don't have a survey, but to a large extent, uh, this is what the prevailing views are. I even gave a lecture recently at a Holocaust studies program, Holocaust studies, where I was speaking about contemporary anti-Semitism, and I offended several people in Holocaust studies because I was critiquing Edward Said and Judith Butler. So there's no academic space that is uh, beyond this uh, philosophical uh, moment, I would argue. So, and I, I'd say very briefly, and I've spoken about this many times, that there's three types of anti-Semitism. So I'll give you the anti-Semitism, the history of anti-Semitism in 60 seconds, so forgive me. But basically, what Robert Wistrich and other scholars of anti-Semitism agreed is that there's something inherently genocidal about anti-Semitism. So when the world uh, was largely perceived through the lens of religion, and I'm speaking mostly now about European Christianity. The Christians believed that if the Jews did not accept the Christian notion of the Messiah, that they would be that they're blinded by evil, and they cannot have personal redemption. But what makes it genocidal is that the Christians believed if it was not for these stubborn Jews, 
there would be world redemption. And until the Jew would accept the notion of the Christian Messiah and accept Christianity, world redemption will be hindered. So this is where there's a genocidal tendency where you have to civilize the Jew. When the lens shifted from religion to race and nation and ethnicity and sort of biologically determined notions of identity, the Jew was the quintessential other. They became a race that was poisoning the purity of the white Aryan race. And this sort of culminates in the Holocaust and the way to protect the purity of the nation, the Aryan nation and the Aryan race, was to rid uh, the world of the Jews. And unlike during the, uh, the religious period, you know, people, science and theology and philosophy believed that race and ethnicity and nation was something um, that was inherent and inherent to our characteristics and you could not escape it, you could not convert um, from your racial identity. So this culminates in physical violence and the annihilation of the Jewish people in the Holocaust. Today, the dominant form of anti-Semitism is an attack on who Jews are as a people, on Israel. And the, the Jewish connection in the diaspora to Israel and, the, and, and to, to Israel in terms of Judaism, its politics, its culture, there's a strong affinity and connection to the Jewish people. And people believe that Israel is the problem, Jewish people is the problem. And if only Israel would disappear or if Israel would change radically, um, the Middle East would have no problems and there'd be world peace, there'd be world redemption without Israel. And as Israel is being demonized, and I think some of the liberals in Europe and North America often perceived in the last several decades that if only the stubborn Israelis would change their policies and make peace with the Palestinians, you know, everything would be okay in the Middle East. But this was an Israeli problem. It wasn't our problem in Europe and North America because we were somehow different and removed from the, from the Middle East. And we went to different schools, and we went to different societies, and we were a little bit different than our Israeli brothers and sisters. But what obviously has happened is Israel is being demonized, and Jewish peoplehood is being uh, delegitimized, the three Ds, as uh, Sharansky argued decades ago. Um, Jewish people going to synagogues in Europe and North America are a target. Jewish children or students on campus who go to uh, the Hillels or the Chabad houses who have a strong affinity to Judaism and to Israel becomes a problem because in this sort of postmodern, this sort of postmodern, liberal, anti-colonial moment, Jewish kids going to Jewish institutions with an affinity to Israel, the, the the entity, the problematic entity, they become problems in this sort of liberal space, and they are feeling attacked. Uh, Barry Cosman from Trinity College in Connecticut, in Hartford, uh, did a very interesting study where he showed, he interviewed um, students who were African-American, women, and Jewish students, and he found that African-American and women experienced or witnessed a racist or a sexist act within a six-month period. There were about 20, 23% of the students, African-American women, witnessed or experienced an anti uh, woman or racist incident. The Jewish students, it's closer to 78% of Jewish students have witnessed or experienced anti-Semitism on campus. This is in the United States a few years ago. So the campus 
is uh, problematic. And I won't go into all the details because I'm sure you read the newspapers, but from, from York University to Rutgers University to University of Toronto, these issues, CUNY, NYU, Columbia, UCLA, San Francisco State University, Berkeley, you name the university and these themes are just occurring and reoccurring. So, we, in October, as part of our research on Follow the Money, we did a, we presented a report, it's on our website, about this, the National Students for Justice in Palestine. So this is a group, does everybody know the, this story? So this is a group, they're on uh, many campuses, they have chapters throughout North America at many universities, over 200 chapters. They are an offshoot of the Muslim Student Association. The Muslim Student Association has been established in the United States in the 1950s, in part by Qutub when he was there in the United States. And this is basically a front for the Muslim Brotherhood and the spin-off for the, for the <coughs> Students for Justice in Palestine are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, the PLFLP, all sorts of organizations that are dedicated to the elimination of Israel. And this is a, they are at the forefront of the BDS movement. So we, in our report, just we showed some extraordinary historical connections to the Muslim Brotherhood and to the radical elements of the Palestinian liberation movement, and also to blatant anti-Semitism. I mean, there were quotes that we published in the report that I couldn't believe. I kept asking my, my colleagues to check and double check because I couldn't believe that students who were involved in a university organization would say such things, advocating for genocide, praising Hitler, you, you, you name it, and leaders of the Students for Justice in Palestine are saying it. Um, so we published that in October, and I think that is beginning to have an impact. Finally, I think in the United States, there's a little bit of a, an ecosystem developing, so these type of, uh, this type of research, and now there's advocacy groups on campus, and there's legal groups uh, beginning to take um, action, and, it, and it's good. I think the, the executive order by President Trump to make uh, Jewish, allow, enabling Jewish students to have some protection under Article 6 of the, uh, of the civil rights uh, laws, is helping to begin the defense of the Jewish uh, students and the Jewish faculty on campus because it's really, I think it's really at the front of, um, of the war uh, against the Jewish people and against Israel and against democratic principles. So just to, to backstep in terms of uh, the, this project we did on fund, Follow the Money, I came here three months ago and I put up a chart, it was an elaborate chart with all these connections. So I'll just, um, I can tell you about it briefly, um, but I, I fell into this project by mistake. I do social and cultural theory, I know nothing about uh, following the money and terror financing, it's not my my area of expertise, but we ran the first um, program on anti-Semitism at Yale University from 2006 to 2011, and in 2011 we were closed. Uh, even though we had a very successful operation, we had uh, postdoctorates and graduate students and uh, fellows, we had uh, a lot of programming seminars, symposiums, conferences, visiting professors, it was a, a going concern. And uh, 
international conferences, funding, we were doing well. Every five years at Yale, they evaluate all the research centers and institutes, and rarely do they close down an institute. They closed the Center for Race, the Study of Racism uh, about a year before they closed us down, but this Center on Racism was dormant for like 23 years, literally. They had no programs, no faculty affiliated with it. It was just existing on the books. So they eventually, after 23 years, closed it. Um, if there's a problem with the institute or research center, they, they can put you on probation, they can recommend uh, changes, they can do all sorts of things. What happened at Yale is they closed us, and for the first time, according to Alan Dershowitz, in the history of Yale University, the academic review committee's report was deemed classified. So none of the faculty, staff members, philanthropists ever saw the, re the report. So we were closed. Um, I was offered, very kindly offered a fellowship at Stanford University, so I went to Stanford. And one night, as I was finishing a, a book, I was writing a book, and you know after you do a long project, you're kind of wired, you can't go to sleep right away. So I started you know, surfing the internet on my computer, and I came across an email from a guy named Charles Hogan. And Charles Hogan was the vice president of Yale, and he was very antagonistic to uh, our center at Yale. And he, at one, in one meeting, uh, there was a PR expert named Gila Reinstein. She was an American-Israeli woman who worked in the PR department. And she worked for us for free. She was volunteering to help us. And in one of the meetings, Charles Hogan told Gila that she's a whore for working on this Zionist project. So today, with the Me Too movement, I don't know if that would have gone, but that sort of passed in the meeting. Uh, so, anyway, so I'm sitting there one night at night, and I come across an email from Charles Hogan. So I, for the first time, I Googled him. And I saw before he came to Yale, he worked at a pharmaceutical company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, named Hydrogen, H-Y-D-R-O-N. And it was a company that was owned, I googled, by a guy named Ben Mufaz, who was a Saudi businessman. One of his chemical companies in the Sudan was bombed by, the, by Clinton, during the Clinton administration, for supporting terror. Um, and then I read Hogan's assistant, Aleta Wagner. She used to work in the State Department with a guy named Alamudi. Alamudi is in prison for running guns to Hamas. He's serving a 23-year-old, 23-year uh, prison term in the federal prison still to this day. So I'm sitting in my little apartment in Palo Alto and I'm going, oh, you know, what, what is this? And I'm finding connections to the Arab Bankers Association and this fund and a fund in, in Beirut and I, I know nothing about this world. So I actually came to, to meet experts on, uh, on the terror financing and on, on terrorism. And I thought either this is just a bunch of coincidence, I have no idea is this a coincidence or a tip of an iceberg. And to make a long story short, some experts said, yes, we know this name and we know this association, we know this company, and it looks like a tip of an iceberg. So I worked with... Um, two colleagues, Glenn Fetter, who worked with Steve Emerson for about eight years, 
He's a Jewish American guy. He, he had to kind of run away from the United States to do his PhD in France because um, some people found out what he was doing, but he was basically going to student groups and to mosques, uh, learning about uh, what, what's going on in these student groups. And he worked um, doing research on political Islam in the United States. He, he was one of the people who worked on this was the Holy Holy Land Foundation in Florida. He kind of found out a lot of the activities from the Muslim Brotherhood. So he knows the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States very well. So he worked with me and we had a, a, an accountant, a forensic accountant who was actually here the last time I, I visited Bessa with me, named Michael Bass. And Michael uh, worked uh, on the accounting end of things and tracing funds. So to make a long story short, um, we worked on this for about six years with very little resources and manpower. And um, Michael Bass's wife won't speak to me anymore because Michael probably worked about 18 hours a day for five years, just finding things. And we came up with uh, pretty amazing findings. And in July of 2019, I was invited, there was a summit in the Treasury Department, and I presented in front of the, the head of the Department of Treasury, the head of the FBI, the Attorney General, and the Assistant Attorney General, the head of uh, the Department of Education, uh, the sec people from the Secretary of State's office was there, and top civil servants, so we presented our findings. And basically we discovered that um, we kind of documented money going to different universities from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, and we found a lot of money, which was quite surprising. And I think the key thing <clears throat> that we found was that we found um, over three and a half billion, with a B, dollars that were going to about 10 universities in the United States that was not reported. So if a university receives money, uh, they have to report it. And they weren't reporting it. We discovered, for example, that uh, in Texas A&M, one university which you would not suspect it to be problematic, we found that they received over $1 billion unreported from the Qatari Foundation. Um, in in the education city of Doha, we found that Georgetown received over um, $500 million, Northwestern $450 million, Cornell $63 million, the Carnegie Mellon $500 million, Texas A&M $275 million, Virgin Commonwealth University $40 million. So this is, the, uh, this is just from these five, uh, two, four, six universities, almost $2 billion. Um, so, th so these are our findings, and now on November the 27th, we were informed officially, I received an, a letter from the Treasury Department that they're doing a formal investigation into illegal funding of foreign universities, uh, from foreign funds to American universities, and that was our goal. So I believe that uh, if we found three and a half billion dollars of money that wasn't reported with our, and I'm not being humble, but our kind of meager resources and yeah. 
So, and I thank you, and I, and then I assume, and I believe that if we can find three and a half billion dollars, there's a lot more money or that's arriving in the United States from foreign funding. And also, what's also interesting, if you think about the pharmaceutical company that was sort of engaged in, in, uh, in this work, and this funding of American universities, they were funding Yale. Um, this pharmaceutical company was giving money to Yale. Um, there's legal American business entities that I'm sure that are giving a lot of funds as well. And their funding um, it has influence on, on what's going on in universities and what's being funded, Middle East studies, different chairs. The fact that uh, our organization was closed at Yale um, soon before, just before we were funded, Michael Oren, uh, who was voted the most popular professor at Yale, I think twice, went up for a tenure position and he was refused because he was too Zionist. Um, and then they closed the Iranian uh, Human Rights Documentation Center, which was affiliated to Yale, which is a very important source for human rights abuses that was taking place in Iran. So there's a lot of politics involved. And I'll just tell you one quick story, and then we can open up for Q&A. I grew up with a guy named Maury Tobin. And Maury Tobin was one of the best athletes I've ever seen in my life. He was my age. We used to play baseball, and he was an amazing athlete. And he was supposed to go on to play uh, professional hockey. And he went to Yale. Uh, he got a scholarship to play hockey at Yale. And he went to the University of Vermont, and he got injured. So his hockey career was ended. And Maury was a guy that was always getting into trouble and always talking his way out of trouble. And uh, he invented a little gizmo with magnets and a battery that he'd go to a telephone booth and all the money would come out of the telephone booth. He made a fortune, but eventually got caught. But then he, you know, he talked his way out of it. He was always he's one of those kids. Um, he moved to LA and he was doing very well, making a fortune, living the high life, and our friends were always talking about like, how was he making his money, and we were always suspicious. And if you follow the news of this, um, this Hollywood sort of network of uh, actors and actresses were giving money to universities to get their kids into school, so Maury was the broker. Maury would take the money and get the kids into the Ivy League schools. And now we're hearing more and more, there's scandal after scandal of people paying money to get kids or grandchildren. There's just another, there's some uh, guy who's a head, one of, uh, he runs an equity fund, uh, Pimco Equities, very wealthy guy. He was just sentenced a couple of days ago to serve nine to 12 months in prison for trying to get his grandchildren, paying people to get his grandchildren to uh, Ivy League universities. So we can see the scandals uh, of sort of universities for hire. You can pay to get your kids and grandkids into these top universities. So if the Maury Tobins of the world are making money doing this, could you imagine what the T Qatari Foundation and other organizations are doing at a much grander level? And um, I think this, the funding of, so we don't know exactly what all this money is going to be that went into the universities, what's it being used for? But I'm sure we know that if philanthropists give a lot of money to universities, it has political sway within the university. And this is operating at a huge level, so I'm sure that there is political gain from this. And I'm sure that this is affecting the curriculum that people are receiving and limiting the curriculum. 
uh, that students and professors are able to speak, to teach, and, and learn from. And we know that some of the funding is going to Students for Justice in Palestine, which is sort of creating a very difficult atmosphere <coughs> on many campuses. So they're kind of the shock troops, I think, for the bigger, for the bigger strategy of, uh, of, of influencing uh, universities. And I'll, and I'll just start by saying, when I, I was recently, I'm, I'm born in Montreal, and a lot of Montrealers moved to Toronto, and I was uh, six weeks ago sitting with a bunch of old friends my age who have kids going to universities. And when, you know, when my father went to school in Montreal, there were quotas against Jews, so my father's generation had a difficult time getting to the good universities. My generation, I started studying at the university in, 19, in the 1980s, 1980s. And in my generation, we were, the Jewish kids were, the world was our oyster. If you applied yourself and worked hard, you can basically do what you want. You can go to any university and become anything you dreamt of being. And here I was sitting with that generation, my generation of friends, and their children are now going to schools. And they were sitting there having a conversation of where to send their children. These are in Canadian universities. Which universities are okay to send your kids and which are not? And the University of Toronto and York University, two of the greatest universities in Canada, are not good for Jews. And they're sending their children to schools that, I w as a teenager, I wouldn't even have thought to go because I wanted to go to McGill or I wanted to go to a good school. And they're sending their kids to schools that are second-rate schools, but they're good for the Jews. And I was listening to them, and I, 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 was, I got upset at a few friends. I was saying, like, how can you accept this? The answer is not just to send your kids off to a second-tier university. You have, to, you, know, you have to fight back as a community. So th this is the, the situation that we're in. And I think it, um, it requires, um, and I think this is the important point, perhaps, of, the, of my, my talk, maybe the most important is we really need a strategic plan. The, the Jewish communities in North America, particularly in the United States, are reacting. They're finally woken up. They know there's a problem of anti-Semitism, and the, the attacks on Israel are, are filled with hatred, and there's an, there's an agenda to, to dismantle Israel. Because if, if Israel is a racist, apartheid, fascist, colonial, pinkwashing, blackwashing entity, as a liberal, you, you have to be morally and politically you know, responsible for dismantling it, like we were for the apartheid South Africa system. So this is what is at risk, and the, 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 the rising anti-Semitism in the diaspora is significant, and the communities are reacting, which is great. It's a step forward, because I think for many years, uh, elements of the communities were not really engaging this, now they are. Um, but I think we need to develop, here's a center of strategic studies, where I think the communities need to really create a strategic plan that's not just a reaction to what's taking place, but a systematic uh, planning and to use experts of, uh, from what's taking place in the university to what's taking place in the community, to scholars of economics and politics and globalization, to, to professors of, uh, of this region, to professors of strategic studies, and experts, professional experts, to come to these communities 
and I think really create a strategic plan that one, we evaluate and understand the significance of the problem. Uh, I don't think that's being done yet. Maybe, maybe it's just starting. And then once we understand the significance of the problem and its nature, um, from, from, from the actors engaged uh, at a, at a, in, in real time, to the socioeconomic and political changes that are occurring in the sort of neoliberal moment of globalization, for how, how these forces are impacting on the center of democracy. I think anti-Semitism is ultimately an early warning system for something that's going wrong. And the attack is from the Islamists, and it's from the radical left, and it's also from the radical right. And I think these attacks are increasing as socioeconomic, political, cultural differentiation and marginalization is increasingly increasing globally. States are, fail, are failing and people are becoming more marginalized. There's migration crisis, there's refugee crisis, populism, nationalism. Uh, we're living in a serious moment and I think we need to have strategic, uh, forward-looking plans and not just reacting to, to situations. Thank you very much. Thank you. First of all, it's interesting to note that your university has in its uh, logo Urim and Tumim. No more. In Hebrew. No more. No more. When Rebel they erased it. Uh, about five or six years ago. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Wow, that's the key. Okay, hit it. Okay. Um, in, Please, in short question, short answer. Okay, in order to develop a plan, in order to develop a strategic plan, um, you have to define what is consensual in the Jewish community, and um, you also have to build up alliances with um, wider segments of the American and Canadian, Canadian um, population. So what are the themes and, and how plausible is it to develop that kind of cons internal consensus? And then who would you reach? Who would you reach out? Who would you reach out to? Because a lot of what you say, I can tell you that students at, uh, who study at Hebrew University um, um, complain about the same thing in Israel. So, so this is not only an, an American problem; it's an internal problem to Israeli uh, academia. I take another question. Okay, another question. Yes. Um, could you please explain uh, or uh, the, the Sharansky's 3D, for those who don't know? One more question. Yeah, go ahead. Could I ask you, how can you equate the anti-Semitism that you've been expressly pointing out to us with regard to the major universities in the United States and also at Oxford University in the UK, when the government and the administration, the Republican administration, Washington today has never ever been more pro-Israel than, uh, than any historic president of the United States and also one could say that the Prime Minister at the moment of uh, Johnson in the UK you could never find a more pro-Israel and supportive uh, Jewish person from that point of view uh, in the UK. Now having got that ingredient on the political side what is your opinion that in due course of time, 
the universities could be held responsible. Because in the UK, I've just finished this, it's not a speech, uh, in the UK in particular, Johnson is basically saying, in, uh, and has implied, that if there was going to be anti-Semitism in any aspects of the university lives in the UK, they will be held responsible from the funding point of view on which they are wholly dependent. And that is something which I think the American administration could play a part. Could I ask your opinion on that, sir? It's already going on in America. I beg your pardon? It's already going on in America. Yes. <laughs> well, I hope it is. I hope it is. OK, please. So, so your question about the alliance and who to reach out to. So I think. No, first the consensus. How much consensus, consensus is there in the Jewish community no to develop a policy? Uh, 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 speak up. What did you say? No, I told you that uh, even uh, it is uh, the interpretation of Ramban that uh, before. Uh, the salvation in the sea, that the children of Israel just closed before the sea, behind them uh, all the uh, horses of Paroh, and at that moment they have been divided to small and small uh, groups, one shouting against Moses, one shouting why not to go back to Egypt, one <coughs> shouting why not to go to the sea. This is typical Judaism, and they deserve this uh, behavior. Questions <laughs> <laughs> answered. <laughs> so, so it's, it's a great question. I, I don't have the answer. However, I think what's Canada could be interesting, because I think there is consensus in the ca Canadian Jewish community that something needs to be done, and they actually just launched a group called Must Speak Enough. And um, they're trying to get all the organizations in the Canadian Jewish community into an ecosystem to combat anti-Semitism. And the Canadian Jewish community is a little bit more traditional, a little bit more united, a little more Zionist than our friends to the, to this, to the south. And I think p perhaps Canada could be good, a good pilot project maybe to develop and then maybe bring to other communities. So that's sort of my hope. And I think there, there is consensus. And in the, in the United States, it's uh, horribly divided. And hopefully, perhaps as things become more pronounced, there'll be more uh, movement for the community to come together and uh, deal with it together. What about the allies? Allies? Yeah, wider than the Jewish community. because. Because some, of course, uh, seeking evangel evangelical support basically polarizes <laughs> both the Jewish community and the alliance and the alliance system. So, what themes can you develop to to get a broader al alliance? So, I think the theme that anti-Semitism <coughs> begins, as Eli Wiesel used to say, Eli, uh, that, as Eli Wiesel used to say, anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never <coughs> ends with Jews. <laughs> And um, once this form of hatred is unleashed on society, it does not know any boundaries. And history bears that out. And I think if you look at the Middle East, it's interesting that um, these reactionary social movements that have been focusing on Israel and the Zionists and Netanyahu and Sharon and the settlements and etc., etc., these are 
the movements that are slaughtering their own brothers and sisters in, in Syria and Iraq, in the streets of Iran. So um, I think to educate people on the fact that anti-Semitism is not just a, a parochial Jewish or Israeli problem, but it's something is going on in our societies that need to be confronted. And if, you, if you're on the left and you believe in human rights and the rights of um, the notion of citizenship and that we are all supposed to be equal under one legal system regardless of our religion or race or gender, um, you should be very concerned because these, these anti-Semitic movements are basically opposed to basic notions of democratic citizenship and processes. So to try to widen that out, and I think, I think it usually it, 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 it's beginning to resonate. I think people, particularly in Europe, are understanding that this is uh, it's not just a Jewish problem. So I think that's that's an angle. Um, so Sharansky wrote his book on the three Ds. It's uh, demonization, double standards, and the delegitimization of Israel. And basically, I think he was at the forefront. Uh, his book must be 20 years old, roughly. And uh, he was ringing the alarm bells long ago that, that Israel uh, is the new, or the Jewish people, is the focus of, uh, of the new, or the contemporary anti-Semitism. And it's an important contribution to the fight against anti-Semitism. I'm also happy to say that uh, Natan Sharansky is the new chair of our research center. And I was just with him today. And he's taking this, uh, this work seriously. And it's an honor to be able to work with him. And your point about the UK. Um, so it's wonderful that Boris Johnson is saying these things. And I hope that he'll implement them. Um, it would be a tremendous welcome and a relief. I think the, the British universities were at the forefront of, uh, of, of uh, being a purveyor and an espouser of the most pernicious forms of anti-Semitism for at least two generations. Um, I'm at St. Anthony's College now in Oxford and uh, you know you can go down, I can go down the road to Tarek Ramadan, is still a professor in Middle East Studies, even though he's preoccupied these days. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood at Oxford has, has a long legacy, as well as the British, the top British universities and the, uh, the establishment. Um, you know, Yosef Kawadawi was a friend of uh, Livingston and Corbyn, and Corbyn worked for, the, for, for Press TV and the Iranian Revolutionary Regime. So the damage that has been done and is being done at British universities is astounding. It, it, it boggles my mind how, how liberal, I, I did my master's and my PhD and my first job was in the UK at Goldsmiths College, it was at Oxford UCL uh, in London. And I remember um, I was teaching and living here in Israel and I was becoming, I was for the, in the 19, around 96, 97, I started reading about the Muslim Brotherhood. I had no idea who they were, even though I had a good education. I kind of heard about them, but I knew nothing about them. And I remember going back to speak to my friends about uh, Oslo and the peace process. And I started explaining the, the connection of the PLO to the, Muslim Brotherhood, to the Muslim Brotherhood and what the Muslim Brotherhood believed in, from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to their connections to Nazism. And many of my academic colleagues at that moment stopped speaking to me. 
Yeah, they said, we, we didn't know you were that type of Zionist, they told me. You know, so this was in the 90s. And these were, these are seriously educated professors at the finest universities. Um, so the, the connection of the British establishment to political Islam, particularly in the universities, goes way back, and it's deep. And I don't know how the government will attack this, but if they're going to attack this problem in a serious way, it, it's um, they're going to have to be. It's it's going to be a big project. It goes, it goes deep. It goes deep. Uh, how do you how you uh, how you deal with this argument? We are not anti-Jewish. We are only anti-Zionist. How you distinguish between um, anti-anti-Semitism, classic anti-Semitism, and, and contemporary anti-Semitism? And um, given this executive order of Trump, which could be used to punish universities yeah. for not doing anything about anti-Semitism, universities say this is like um, infringe, an infringement on academic freedom and public speech. And, and the whole thing, yeah, BDS is saying, oh, uh, you're, you're, you're silencing us. So I can answer that. So um, I wrote an article with Ed Kaplan in 2006. It was published in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. And we interviewed 5,000 people in 10 European countries. And we asked them a series of questions of classical forms of anti-Semitism. You know, do Jews uh, stick together and they cheat in business? The old anti-Semitic classical, anti-Semitic uh, tropes. And then we asked them a series of questions, what we called Israel bashing, where the Israelis poison the water of Palestinians, or they kill, the, the IDF intentionally shoots children. And so based on our criteria, we classified, once you answer a certain amount of questions in a certain way, you're classified as classically anti-Semitic or Israel bashing. And what we found was that the levels of anti-Semitism and Israel bashes were relatively low. But the correlation between anti-Semites and Israel bashers was very high. Was, so if somebody was an Israel basher, they were 13 times more likely to be anti-Semitic in the classical sense. So there was a very powerful correlation. And the correlation the other way? <coughs> uh, the other way meaning if somebody was anti-Semitic, anti maybe anti I, I have to go back and read the article. I'm not sure, but the thing that, st that sticks out to, stuck out to us was the correlation between those who were Israel bashers to be classically anti-Semitic, and it was very high. Um, so we were the first to scientifically prove what I guess everybody sort of knew. Um, and then this led to people working on the definition of anti-Semitism to update it, and the work on the definition of anti-Semitism, which included the article that I wrote with Kaplan, helped to create the IRA definition. And the IRA definition is beginning to have traction. There's more and more countries and states and provinces and institutions that are developing this idea of, um, of, of the IRA definition that there is, to be anti-Semitic also blames Jewish people for Israeli policies or equates Israel as being a Nazi apartheid state, that this is a form of anti-Semitism. Explain that, please. So, go ahead. I don't know what this to ask for, but it's, 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 a, it's an affiliation of, uh, of, uh, of uh, 
professors from all over the world who came up with the definition of anti-Semitism. So uh, that's one of the things yeah. they do. So it's a it's a it's a Holocaust and international Holocaust and Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism, and it's being adopted globally. And what's interesting at the Oxford University uh, moment, um, Oxford adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, and there were professors from Oxford that were in complete, overt violation of the university's definition of anti-Semitism. And, you know, so as you get older, you learn to play uh, strategic, you learn to play chess a little bit. So I spoke to certain people there, and I said, that this is all, it's all recorded. It's in front of, um, I, I have depositions. Barbara wrote her impression of what she w witnessed in this conference. So we have eight professors who wrote their accounts of what happened. And I went to people in the, in the administration of Oxford, and I said, this is, you know, there are people who were anti-Semitic according to the guidelines adopted at Oxford University. And it helps, it helps us. And I didn't go to the media and yell and scream, but I was a gentleman, and in, in the best sense of the word, in the Oxford, Oxbridge British tradition. And I went quietly like a good citizen of the university. But I think some people, therefore, are sort of helping us do work on issues of anti-Semitism. Uh, so it helped. It helped us. So it's important. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, looking from the other side of the coin, is uh, how did Jewish hundreds of thousands of Jewish students in American universities, many of them in top universities, up subject uh, and exposed to all this? How do they react? So let me let me take uh, one more question. It's hot. I think, Charles, it's a, it, it has to be a governmental issue. Were you in touch with the Israeli government, with the Foreign Affairs Ministry, or any kind of Mossad organization, for example? It should be taken seriously by these by this, uh, organizations. Yeah. Gershon. I'm just uh, wondering about all what I learned now regarding the philosophy of scientific endeavor. It means that really taking all postmodernism, at the end it is at least in part an outcome of the critical attitude of uh, philosophy of science regarding social sciences, etc. At the end, I just to tell you something. After 9-11, I came uh, to the Pentagon, head of delegation from the general staff in Israel, and we gave some briefings to them and among them was the chairman of net assessment, uh, Andrew Marshall. Uh, he was quite old that day. And uh, when I just ended my presentation, he asked me like that, if I understood you correctly, do you mean that all our experts are misleading us and all our universities found to be irrelevant? I told him, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the end of uh, the academical world. Yeah, so I'll work backwards, yeah. So I, I, I unfortunately I agree with you. I, I remember the famous um, comments of James Clapper on the Muslim Brotherhood, that they're a diverse uh, secular organization uh, geared towards peace. He was the head of uh, intelli national intelligence, national security. So, um, I yeah, I think that 
Uzi was the, the question. I asked the question. No, no, I asked the question. Oh, I'm going to work backwards this time. Okay. 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 Now I lost my train of thought. Now. No, it's um. If you think about it, when um, in the academic world, when when uh, Barack Obama went to Cairo, and he in that speech, that that that's that to me is a historic moment, and in the academy. In the in the in the Arab Spring, we, right? I I remember at Yale there was a big meeting for Pesach to celebrate freedom, and they had about a hundred professors and students, and there was a big round table, and everybody was speaking about the Arab Spring, how wonderful it is, and they were going home to watch Al Jazeera TV because they have a deeper understanding than CNN or the BBC, and they're talking about how wonderful it is, and I I don't speak Arabic, I'm not an expert on the Middle East. But I said to them, I said, could somebody point to one, one academic study that has surveyed the people demonstrating in Tarar Square in Cairo? And what are their views? Do they really, really want to bring about democratic change? Because all I hear is Allah Akbar and other Islamist slogans. I don't speak Arabic. I'm not an expert. But what's, is there anybody around this table that could, can refer to one academic study? And of course, nobody could. And the reaction to me was that I must be, you know, anti-democratic, right-wing, neo-colonial, etc. So, so, so there, there's a, a, a moment. I think this this academic moment, um, and of course Obama's rapprochement with uh, Iran. And in the academy, nobody was really speaking out against this. And I think that the catastrophe, I would even call it a genocide in Syria and Iraq, is taking place in a moment where the academic community, I'm being very general, so forgive me, but in general, nobody was really speaking out about it. In fact, people are still focusing on Israel when there's uh, this, these horrors taking place. And, and I think this is driven by this postmodern, Disconnected from reality lens that we're, you know, we we view reality through, and and the uh, Qatari money coming yeah. from the uh, foundation. So it's 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 yeah it's a it's a catastrophe. It really is. So um, yeah, and and that shouldn't be underestimated. And it's uh, it's it's tragic. Um, To, to respond, yes, I think the government should be involved. I think um, I was speaking to people. I, th I, I I don't know the whole history, but I know that uh, governments were involved in the struggle for Soviet Jews to free Soviet Jews. Nativ. Nativ. Other groups did wonderful things. The Jewish diaspora did amazing things, and there was a unity, with some friction at times, but there was a unity to free Soviet Jews. And I think we're at a stage now where people, governments, and experts really need to get a handle of what's going on and to prepare and to be proactive and and, may, and maybe everything will work out well. Maybe things will shift. But I think we're, the processes are, to me, are indicating that things are accelerating. I used to think anti-Semitism was going to get worse. And, and I didn't realize it would be exponential. It's, it's speeding up. And I think, yes, I think government, experts, scholars, professionals, need to, and I hope they are, 
getting a handle on what's happening and to try and create proactive measures to defend the communities and defend democratic principles. But certainly it's more problematic. The native model is certainly much more problematic in democratic states like the United States and Great Britain. I mean, to have a foreign government you know, <laughs> leading, it, 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 that, that's problematic. Okay, just right? a second. Okay. Uzi. Uh, Uzi, uh, ask you how. Uh, yeah, ask my question. No, no, no. So, to respond to your question, the reaction in colleges. I was in Pittsburgh six, seven weeks ago, and there was ACT IL created a, there was a group of, a student conference on anti Semitism. And there were about four, <coughs> 400 amazing young students. And they were from all over North America, from every group, stand with us, Chabad, Hillel. It was no egos, no logos. All these kids were together. 90% were Jewish. I think about 10% came for, they weren't Jewish, came from, for all sorts of different reasons. They have Jewish girls, friends. They what? They have, they have Jewish uh, uh, friends. Yeah. Right. Some were evangelical, some were anti-racist. It was a mix. Interesting. And they were bright and engaged. And for the first time, I was very active in the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. For the first time, I thought, now something is finally happening. There was an energy in the room, and the kids were... And I asked the students. Now, some of them are very left-wing and liberal. And some of them were saying they were critical of Israeli policies for causing them problems on campus. They want to be accepted. They, they want to. Uh, some of them were upset at Hillel for not accepting students for justice in Palestine to come to Hillel for events. Right. So I was one of the speakers, and I asked the students, "Has anybody ever heard of Qutub or Albana?" Four hundred kids fighting anti-Semitism. Not one, not one, put up their hand. So the amount of work that we need to do with the students to to map and decode what's taking place on campus is huge. So if I was a young liberal kid and I want to be, I want to be accepted by the Palestinian kids, and I don't, I don't want the Anglo-Saxon kids to tell me I'm a racist fascist. I want to be accepted. But if I don't understand the the dynamics of the campus and who's funding the Students for Justice in Palestine and what their ideology is and who they are, what I hear from you is that Jewish students are not fighting back. They're fighting, but they need to become aware of who they're fighting. They don't know who they're fighting. They know there's a, everybody knows there's a problem, but I hope this report begins to resonate. I think, I think they want to fight. They don't have the, they, they don't have the, uh, the, the information, the knowledge, and the tools to do the job. The and the courage that they try to play low, stick to the trend, Join the anti-Israeli chorus, this is J Street, because it makes them more acceptable, and they're not fighting back. Yeah, look, uh, Warren said yesterday she won't go to APAC. Yeah. And where? Okay, uh, sorry. Matt? The last, last questions, because we have to finish you. No, you. I was just Hello. saying, I mean, Aliyah two months ago from Mazel America, tov. and I followed my question. Nice to see you. My question is, I deal a lot with the students in Israel, and I try to write down on my Facebook how much they should relate to anti-Semitism. And I find, uh, my question is really whether you are, have access to students here, because I'm afraid, I haven't yet looked into it in depth, 
but I'm afraid with the campuses here in general, maybe not Barilan, are still very much to the left. And I've had some very sharp reaction to what I've been saying, which was, pay attention to anti-Semitism all over the world and let's unite here. And they started talking about freedom of speech. Here, Israeli professors and my alumni, alumni, Israelis. And I worry that they're too detached Israeli academia and young students are too detached from the problem of anti-Semitism. They feel it's not their problem. And I think they should be very aware. And even what you just said, my question was really, it is so mind-blowing, although some of us sort of thought that money is getting there, a lot of money. Is it something that we can talk about, what you, just, what you said about sure. those yeah. billions? Yeah, we it's can? public, yeah. Because that would be my next, uh, <laughs> what I'm gonna talk about. Yeah, well, we presented it in this important it's summit, it's on the record. Although some of us, as I say, we felt it. So the point is that academia here has to be shaken up. Yeah. I, I agree. That we should be one people these days. <laughs> so, I'd say two. Th so I'm going to be very general. So forgive <laughs> me, but I think, in a sense, you know, I also made Aliyah a long time ago. I left, unfortunately, fortunately, to fight the fight. <laughs> it's totally louder. I I also made Aliyah. And I'm also I moved here in the '90s and then I left. And there's this ethos, I think, in Israel that. In Galut, there's anti-Semitism, and when you come here, you're, you're a free <laughs> Jew. And, and to a large extent, it's true. Um, but I think it's, there's a moment now in history where Israeli society needs to become aware, not just to help the communities around the world, but I believe that this is really a strategic threat to Israel. And it's a serious threat. Um, and then we also have to realize, I think, that the, the academy... In academia, um, we all want to write in the same journals, we all read the same texts, and this philosophy, this worldview is uh, powerful. So for Israeli, for any scholar to kind of break from this uh, worldview, this, from this uh, framework, it, it's not easy. And uh, it's a challenge. So it's called publish or perish. Yeah. Is it true? Yeah. If you want to read the Semitism every morning in Hebrew, read Aritz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had one with one, one of the Samira Hess wrote about the conspiracy, she used the, exp the expression, conspiracy of international jewelry in Hebrew. And I wrote uh, the, 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 what's his name? Uh, I understand the freedom of speech, but in his paper, to have an expression like that, that is taken directly from Goebbels, I mean, it's, he, he calls himself a Zionist, well, okay, not Zionist, at least a Jewish paper. He looked at it, he said that he wrote it, and they don't see any anti-Semitism. Oh, what did he say back? No, no, and he said no, no, there's no, 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 there's no there is, No, but if we're already speaking about that, it is a great interest from everyone that will come to make a research. 
about what's going on now in, in this period because uh, the contradiction and the uh, absurd of being liberal and yet uh, destroying the whole uh, basic principles of liberalism oh, yeah, so uh, clear. I'll just give you an example how it is walking to the other side. I've learned Michel Foucault in 1980s, in times that nobody in the United States already knew who he is. And he published a, a book of letters to the whole leaders of the Iranian revolution, including yeah. Khomeini. Yeah. It was translated to English only in 2005, something, or three, something like that. And when it was published, he was still alive before his death in 1984. And uh, Simone de Beauvoir criticized him. How you are praising with affiliation this uh, regression and uh, giving support to that uh, phenomena. And his answer was, you liberals are all suffering from anti-religious chauvinism. And I'm citating from the English translation. It means that to support the Iranian, it is uh, uh, to give uh, support to religious uh, new phenomena. And the criticism is anti-religious uh, chauvinism. But uh, everything regarding Israel is uh, absolutely clear immorality. OK, um, it's uh, one more. I just, I just want to uh, affirm everything that, uh, that, that Charles said. He doesn't need affirmation from me, but so, uh, having been an eyewitness to what happened in Oxford, um, it, absolutely was true. There were personal attacks against the academics by academics. And, uh, and you should know that the younger academics, the postdocs and the, and the young professors hoping for tenure and the, and the uh, graduate students were being pressured and intimidating into signing a petition against the inclusion of the Jewish scholars and the African American scholars who were questioned about their credentials, and this was uh, on the first day. It was a scholar who had who had been uh, who was a Harvard graduate. His credentials were being questioned, and uh, and and they tried to cut him off, you know, for speaking at all. Uh, so there was shunning, there was intimidation, and there was the influence, the pernicious influence uh, uh, on these younger scholars who really are looking up to and dependent upon the older academics for their careers. So of course they're going to sign this petition, number one. And the other thing about consensuality, having worked for 18 years at one of the largest federations in America, one of the largest Jewish federations in America, I can tell you that as late as 2015, the head of the federation, who had lived in Israel, who had served in the IDF, stood up in front of a room full of more than 120 people to say anti-Semitism is not a problem today. 2015. Okay. Thank you one, one of the problems is the attitude of the Israeli government toward the conservative and reform movements. That's another issue. But that doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, I want to just to conclude by saying that uh, <laughs> uh, the delegitimization de and demonization of Israel started in 2011 in Durban, uh, South Africa. Yeah. I wrote an article, uh, a scholarly article, because one of my fields is public diplomacy. I wrote an article uh, after that uh, saying that um, Israel and the Jewish people uh, were ignoring the threats 
of delegitimization, anti-Semitism, and demonization, and I called for building a strategic plan. Um, the Israeli government, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, had been relying on hard power. Hard power was considered to be the most effective power. Uh, we, in international relations theory, we have developed uh, the term smart power, which is a combination of hard power and some soft power. What we are talking about here is the highly uh, successful Palestinian and campaign to use soft power against Israel uh, after failing to, to challenge Israel by, by hard power from, from conventional and, and, and um, uh, terrorism. Thank you very much for coming. Very Thanks for you all for coming. Copy, but uh, it's almost 100% uh, So it's going to be out in the States in local.